Well, this morning we are going to focus in the scripture about the mercy and the grace and the patience that about which we've just sung. We are in a series on the attributes of God, those characteristics, those traits, those descriptions that describe who God is. Encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Second Samuel chapter twenty-four. Second Samuel twenty-four. A few weeks ago, Pastor Brian shared with us about God's goodness and talked about the fact that we often, sometimes, we we bring our concept, our idea of what a good God should look like to him, instead of acknowledging that he is the standard, that he defines what it means to be a good God. We've talked about the love of God, that he selflessly gives of himself to the benefit of others. Today, we are going to look at what some theologians actually categorize as three attributes, but in reality are, are three demonstrations of God's goodness. Three ways that God shows his goodness to different groups of people. We're going to see that God's mercy is simply his goodness shown to those who are in need, who are suffering affliction. God's grace is simply his goodness shown to those who deserve nothing but punishment. And God's patience is his goodness shown to those who continue in sin. My wife Barbara and I live kind of out in the country. We don't live in the city limits. We're just in our county, out on the near the edge of Toddville, Iowa. And because of where we live, we tend to receive a lot of strays, especially cats. Stray cats seem to be have a regular schedule of appearing at our house. My personal opinion is cats are kind of creepy. Just the way that they look at you. We had one last night just come to the lower level of our house and just gaze into our windows like if I was bigger, I would eat you. Well, we had this one stray cat that was the ugliest cat I have ever seen. I mean, it was just pitiful. It was like just begging someone to put it out of its misery. It was gaunt. Its eyes were sunken. It was just the grossest looking cat that you'd have ever seen. And it would show up and I would yell at it, get out of here, you ugly cat, and yell at it and would just kind of just hover around. And one day it just was gone. We didn't see it for weeks and weeks. 
Christmas time rolled around and our next-door neighbors, Jim and Cheryl, said, Steve and Barb, come on over. We're having some neighbors over. We're going to have a little Christmas celebration. We'll have some cookies and some punch and just visit, just doing the neighbor thing. And we went over, and my neighbors, Jim and Cheryl, were all excited for us to meet Petey. Why well, the who's Petey? And I looked over, and it was that cat, that same cat, that gaunt, ugliest cat in the world, Petey. They'd given it a name. They'd given it a home. And you couldn't believe the transformation. It was fat. It was groomed. It actually had an air about it, like, this is my home, welcome to my home, and I'm seated on my pillow, this is my turf, I'm glad you could come see me. I couldn't believe it. It's that cat. You know, that cat had no future. It, it, there was nothing of anything about it that would, would make someone to want it. Again, it was the ugliest cat I've ever seen. And yet, someone just extended goodness to it. They just chose to. And that cat that at one point in time had no future and no hope and no security, all of a sudden had a home. And... Someone that loved it. And it was secure. And it could rest. And it could just enjoy life. And you know what? Whether we recognize it or not, each and every one of us in this room at one time was just like that cat. We really had nothing about us that would in any way make us acceptable or pleasant. The Bible tells us we're just sinners. We are men and women and boys and girls that just would hold our fists up to our Creator and say, I'm going to do what I want to do. We have no hope. We have no security. We have no reason at all to even get up in the morning. There's nothing to look forward to for us in and from an eternal perspective. And yet, someone chose to show us goodness. And that's what we want to talk about today. That goodness of God shown to us in three different ways. His mercy shown to those of us who are needy and afflicted. His grace shown to us that the Bible tells each of us who deserve nothing but punishment from God. And his patience shown to us who continue in sin. To begin looking at this aspect of God's goodness that the Bible refers to as mercy... I want us to turn to 2 Samuel 24 in the Old Testament. We're going to again, once again, look at several passages of Scripture. We don't have time to totally unpack them all. 
but I want us to see these threads of these attributes of God that run all the way through our Bibles. And in 2 Samuel 24, we come to a passage that actually has a parallel in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 28, through chapter 22, verse 19. That passage in 1 Chronicles records this same event, but gives us a little bit more detail than, than the first Samuel passage, 2 Samuel passage does. This passage brings us to the end of King David's reign. And most likely King David is thinking about a succession plan. How am I going to turn the kingdom over to my son Solomon? And the section tells us that David orders a census. It also tells us that God considers David ordering that census to be sin. We're not totally told why, but we see a glimpse why in verses 2 and 9. We find that David asks Joab, the commander of the army, to conduct a census. And down in verse 9 it says, And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. 1,300,000 warriors. Now, it's interesting that evidently David just asked for the mighty men, the soldiers to be counted. Most likely what's going on here is David is ascertaining the, the level of military strength represented in his nation. Evidently, what's happening here is David's doing that so that he can have confidence in himself and the military might of Israel instead of confidence in God. Because when we come down to verse 10, it tells us as soon as David heard the numbers, he knew he had sinned against God. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus says the Lord, I'm offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them which I will do to you. So David realizes that by ordering the census, he's demonstrating a sense of self-reliance instead of relying on God. He knows he's sinned against God, and God knows he's sinned against God. So God sends the prophet Gad, go tell David, I'm going to discipline you, but here's the catch. I'm going to give you three options. You get to choose your discipline. Wow. Look at the three in verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. How would you like to have a discipline like that? I'm going to discipline you. Here's three choices you choose. When my youngest son was just a kid, when it came time to discipline, he would always beg us to spank him. 
because he was a very social kid and he hated timeouts. To him, to be sent to his room was just the worst thing possible. And I still remember that kid saying, why can't you just spank me and get it over? Well, here, David gets to choose. What's going to be my discipline? Look at what he does in verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. What a statement. You see, David is saying, I'd rather be at the mercy of God than at the mercy of men. Because God has great mercy. His mercies are great. Let me fall before him as my first choice. Turn over to the New Testament, to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. In the book of 2 Corinthians, we find the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And in the church in Corinth at the time are those who are challenging the Apostle Paul's authority. And here's their argument. This guy is so weak, and it seems like he's always suffering. How can he have the authority as an apostle? So right from the very beginning of the letter, the Apostle Paul lays out a premise. In a sense, a theology of suffering. His point is this. Suffering has a purpose in the life of the Christian. So he writes this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God's mercy is his goodness demonstrated to those who are in need, who are in affliction. The problem is, is that way too often we come to him as a last resort. Several years ago, I was supposed to go up fishing in northern Minnesota. Every year, a group of us guys would go, look forward to it all year long, and it was almost time to go on our trip. And I started having an achy tooth. Well, I thought to myself, ah, it's just an achy tooth. Nothing that some Advil can't handle. I don't want it to mess up my trip. So I would have, if I felt a little ache, I'd take some Advil. If I felt a little more ache, I'd take some more Advil. I was golden. Spent my time getting all my equipment ready, putting new line in all of my reels, so that when I hit the water, while everybody else was still trying to get their stuff ready, I could just cast. Problem. That toothache became unbearable. I was in misery. I couldn't sleep at night. I couldn't enjoy food. I couldn't even drink coffee without pain. It was just misery. If only I had gone to a source of help instead of just trying to dull the pain. 
As soon as I got home, I went to my favorite endodontist and had a root canal. So often when we start feeling the weight of affliction, pain, hurt, trials in our lives, sometimes extremely severe, we tend to try to dull that pain instead of doing what David did and what Paul talks about doing, of coming to the Father of mercies, of running to the Lord. How do I do that? Well, one of the main things that we do is we simply need to tell him, God, I need you right now. We need to express our dependence on him. Father, I'm hurting. I need you. And then we take out this book, the only book that God has ever written, the main means by which God speaks to us as the Spirit of God takes the words of this book and impresses it upon our hearts and we start to read. But we do so by asking God as we read our Bible, God, show me yourself today as I read your word. Please encourage me. Help show me that you're with me, that you're in control of this situation. And he will do it. We don't also live the Christian life on an island. That's why it's so important that we connect with a community group. Here at at Faith Bible Church, they meet on Sunday nights or in an adult ed class or we're serving together in some aspect of ministry with brothers and sisters in Christ so that when we hit those times of affliction, we're not on an island by ourselves. that we have a brother in the Lord for a man or a sister in the Lord for a woman with whom we can share so that... They can help encourage us as channels of God's mercy to us. God's mercy is simply his goodness shown to us when we are in need. Now let's look at the other half of that coin, God's grace. And to do that, I invite you to turn with me over to the book of Romans, Chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. God's grace is once again God's goodness. It's God's goodness given to those who deserve only punishment. And that's what the first part of the book of Romans is telling us. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages or the penalty of that sin is death. That's all we deserve. What I deserve, what you deserve, is eternity separated from God in a place called hell. That's what we deserve. That's our wages. But God is a good God. And he demonstrates that goodness to us. Those of us, all of us who who deserve nothing but punishment, he demonstrates it in his grace. And his grace comes to us in a person, Jesus Christ. By faith. And so Paul spends a lot of time in the book of Romans showing that we only enter into right relationship with God by faith, not by anything that we do. If we could earn it, it wouldn't be God's goodness 
bestowed upon us via his grace. And so that's Paul's argument. We come to Romans chapter 4. He goes back to the Old Testament and argues that even in the Old Testament, people experience God's goodness, God's grace, by faith, not by something that they do to earn his favor. So he goes to Abraham to prove that. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 2, it says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Quoting from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. So here's Paul's argument. Right standing with God. What I like to call applied holiness comes to Jew and Gentile only by faith. Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, even proves that because his right standing with God came only by faith. God's graciousness, his goodness, can only be applied to our lives by us putting our trust in him. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. So when we come down to Romans chapter 4, verse 16, Paul writes this, For this reason, it's by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So Jew and Gentile both have access to the grace of God, this goodness of God showered upon us, not by anything that we do, not by our own merit, but by putting our faith in this good provision that God has made for us. Look with me over at Romans chapter 11. We don't have time to totally unpack this passage, but in the first seven verses, Paul is arguing God made promises to Israel. He's going to honor those promises. He always honors his promises. And right now, there's still a remnant of believing Israel. Look at verse 5. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So Paul's argument is this. There's a believing remnant of Israel, not because of the fact that they're so good, or that somehow they had superior intelligence to put their faith in Jesus Christ and other par- other ones of Israel didn't. No, it's because God in his grace chose them. He chose to bestow his grace on them. They didn't deserve it. It's kind of like my next door neighbor looking at that ugly, gaunt, cat and just chose to extend goodness to that cat. God chose to extend goodness to you and to me in the person of Jesus Christ. The neat thing about grace is the fact that 1 Corinthians 15.10 and 1 Peter 5.10 show us that 
God's grace not only extends to us who do not deserve it in our salvation, but God's grace also equips us to live out the Christian life. We are not saved by faith and sanctified by works. God not only chooses to make it possible for you to enter into right relationship with him through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, he also enables you to live for him by that power that only comes from him. God's grace is his goodness freely given to those who deserve only punishment. In the first church that I pastored up from uh, 1988 to 1995, I pastored a rural church up in North Dakota. And in our church family was a man who felt like his spiritual gift was pointing sin out in other people, pretty much everybody. That was his gift, and he was very good at it. I'll never forget when he confronted my wife and I that we were sinning because I was letting my boys watch Walt Disney movies. I did not have a lot of time for that. You know, it's an interesting thing that when you find a person who's not gracious with others, they don't understand how much grace they've received themselves. And it wasn't too long after that that there was some pretty gross sin that was revealed in this guy's life. And instead of confessing it, he justified it. He justified his own actions. You see, he wouldn't recognize his own dependence on the grace of God. Thus, he was never gracious with anybody else. One of our issues in thinking about God's mercy and his grace and his patience, is not intellectually understanding it, but practically having his mercy and his grace and his patience be operating in in the way we view our lives in everyday life. We so often really fail to recognize it. For every Christian... Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 should be on the forefront of our thinking. Remember those verses? There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. And too often we give intellectual assent to grace. But the way we operate we somehow think that we bring something to God, that somehow we were smart enough to put our trust in Jesus over somebody else who is rejecting him, instead of recognizing that I am lost. There's nothing about me that would make me lovable to God. He just chose to be gracious to me. He chose to, by his Spirit of God, to convict me, to help me see that I'm a sinner and that I need to put my trust in Jesus. God is a good God. He bestows mercy on those who are in need and affliction. He bestows grace 
on men and women and boys and girls who deserve only punishment. It's one other aspect of God's goodness that I want us to look at this morning, and that is his patience. His patience toward those who just seem to continue in sin. We see it in Romans chapter 2. The first five verses of Romans 2, we find the Apostle Paul addressing people who think they are good in their own eyes. Well, nothing's happened to me. I haven't experienced any kind of judgment. I'm good. So Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? In chapter 9 verse 22, Paul writes, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God could have just wiped out humanity. When that flood came, he could have just wiped out all human beings, but he didn't. In fact, the Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, as Peter, as he wrote to this church, this church had false teachers attacking Jesus Christ, saying, where is he? If he's coming back, where's he at? Maybe he's not coming back in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 4. So Peter writes in verse 8, The Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, Paul says Jesus hasn't come back because he wants to see more men and women and boys and girls come to faith in Jesus Christ, to experience his Grace. Paul himself recognizes the patience of God. He talks about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 16. He considers himself to be the most vile of sinners. And he wrote in verse 15, it's a trustworthy statement, 1 Timothy 1, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, you know what? Look at my life. Who deserved punishment more than me? I am the vilest of sinners. I was attacked. Jesus Christ. I was attacking the church. I was punishing Christians. And yet God's patience was extended to me. I continued on in my sin and I continued on in my sin. And yet God showed me goodness. And he was gracious to me. And I saw my need for Jesus and I trusted him. We should never get to a point where we think that that person in our web of relationship who continues to say no to Jesus Christ, we should never get to a point where we say, well, I guess I'll write him off. Or look at a person and say, ah, there's no way that guy would ever be interested in hearing about Jesus Christ. Because... We have a good God 
who desires each and every person to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Will they? No. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3 goes right on in the next verse, after verse 9, when it's said, He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then that very next verse says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. In verse 5 of Romans 2, right after verse 4, Paul writes, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Wrath will come. But God in his patience desires men and women and boys and girls to experience his goodness. You may be here this morning and you don't know if you've ever really experienced the goodness of God. You've never come to that point in your life where you acknowledge, I'm a sinner and I can't fix that. Jesus is God and he died for me and rose again from the dead. The Bible is very clear that that payment for sin is available to you. And it's credited to our lives by faith, by transferring the dependence of our life from ourselves, thinking I can be a good enough person to earn merit with God, and putting my sole dependence on the person of Jesus Christ, believing that he is God, that he died for me and rose again from the dead. And if you haven't done that today, I would encourage you, don't leave today without doing that. One of our elders will be back in our prayer room right behind you. After the service, just pop in there. Our elder would be happy to give you a little booklet that has verses in it. You can look up in your own Bible and read about how you can know for sure that you are in right standing with God, that you have holiness applied to your life so that you can be in relationship with him. Or maybe you're here today and you're hurting You are going through a time like you haven't experienced for a long time, and you need God's mercy. It's so easy for us to try to find Advils, things to dull the pain, whether it's a hobby or a vacation or alcohol or any other substitute, instead of coming to the Father of mercies encourage you, don't leave today without praying with a brother or sister in the Lord. And if you want to just go back in the prayer room and pray, please do that. God is a good God. And in his goodness, he's extended us mercy and grace and patience. Father, we thank you for who you are, that in your very nature, your goodness demonstrates itself in your mercy, and your grace, and your patience. Help us to recognize that, not just intellectually, but in our everyday working out of our lives, that we know that we can come to you and find goodness. Help us to recognize the depths of your grace and our salvation so that we will not have a spirit of haughtiness, but rather a spirit of love, noting that we didn't deserve anything from you, but you just chose to be gracious to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.